Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Cordelia Biddle, author of Biddle, Jackson, and a Nation in Turmoil. Cordelia Francis Biddle, author of Biddle, Jackson, and a Nation in Turmoil, the infamous bank war. It's uh, hard to not notice that the main character in your book and you share a same last name. Now, did you always know about Nicholas Biddle when you were growing up, or is this something you, you learned about later on in life? Uh, no, I knew about Nicholas Biddle, but um, I was not terribly interested in banking, and um, I grew up with a father who was a novelist, and, um, and, and so that side of the family didn't really appeal to me, but I became fascinated by him later on when I started looking at the history and looking at the history of our nation, looking at how divisive that era was. And, uh, and then I thought, well, let me find out about this man. Um, surely he had a different life beside being a financier. And in fact, he did. And um, I, I don't know if you are aware, I write novels as well as nonfiction. So when I'm creating a character, and I have a series set in Philadelphia in the 1840s, and so this is my my natural place to be is in the 1840s, I guess. Um, maybe I'm just a Luddite at heart. Um, but I really started wondering about his place in history and what the historicity of the era, how that informed him. And so I went back in time. Um, the Biddles uh, came to America in 1681 and settled in New Jersey, Burlington, New Jersey, then eventually came to Philadelphia. Um, Nicholas Biddle's um, father fought in the Revolutionary War. One uncle served on the st early state legislature. Another uncle uh, died as a result of a terrible um, naval gun naval battle during the Revolutionary War. That was also a Nicholas Biddle, and um, and so I I thought here's this family who are really uh, uniquely centered in terms of the history of the United States. And then I started looking at Nicholas, my Nicholas, the Nicholas the financier, and he was so different than the rest of his siblings, the rest of his uncles. Um, he graduated from Princeton University uh, what became Princeton University was then called the College of New Jersey. At the age of 15, the youngest person to this day to do so, and I thought he's he's entirely different than his family. They were all kind of men of action, um, and he lived a life of the mind. And I thought, who is he? If I'm writing any character any historical character, whether of my own invention 
or, or as he is, a true character, a true person, I want to know what the motive is. Who, who are these people? What were they like as children? How did their families and their, the historicity of the era affect them? What choices did they make? What choices couldn't they make? Um, and so that's what led me into looking at him. I didn't start the book thinking that I was going to do an expose on banking. I really wanted to know who he was. And then, of course, which led me to his kind of terrible battle with Andrew Jackson, um, and, and also led me to a really fascinating time in our nation's history, because we were so polarized politically, we were, I would say, as polarized as we are now. And I wondered how, how we came out of it. What, what happened? I mean, the, if you look at the newspapers, which I read in their original form at the Library Company of Philadelphia, the, 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 it was villainous. Both sides attacked, attacking each other. There was one, of, one political cartoon of Andrew Jackson being uh, roasted on a spit, and Nicholas Biddle was a devil, and Andrew Jackson was impaling him with a sword. I mean, these are vile. So what, what, how did we, how did we end up in that position as a nation, and how did we come out of it? I think I've answered your question way too. <laughs> <laughs> now, Nicholas Biddle is what relation to you? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm direct descendant, so great, 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 great grandfather, something on that. It's a great, great, great something, rather. Well, it sounds from your book, you mentioned his, his brothers, and it sounds like each of his brothers are deserving of a book, too. I mean, one was captured by the Barbary pirates. That, that's correct, and um, and he and, and 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 I think they are deserving. I mean, the Barbary that the Barbary War was an an amazing event in our history as well. And what happened to those men after they were captured and the their their heroic rescue? I deal with all of that in my book because I there again, although it is the the bank is a central part of Nicholas Biddle's life, who his family was changed who he was as well. And so he, um, in fact, in 1804, from 1804 to 1807, he journeyed to Europe to become the secretary to the minister to first France and then to Great Britain, who was James Monroe. And his brother had just been released or, or rescued from the Barbary pirates. And he, uh, so, so he, so here he is traveling through Europe with a you know heroic brother, and um, and you know, and yet he is still living a life of the mind. And I have posited in my book that he had a reason for being in Europe from 1804 to 1807. If you, if for those of you who know your absolutely Napoleonic history down cold, you will know that this was the time when Napoleon was rampaging through the whole of Europe and capturing it was, Europe was in, in arms. And um, Biddle traversed throughout all of these various areas and uh, never wrote about it. And I discovered his uh, journals, these European journals that had 
been believed lost. They had actually just been misfiled at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. And uh, I wept when I found them. But here he is going through, you know, from, from France into Austria, never mentioned troop movement or towns that had been destroyed by war. Not once he talked about all the people that he'd met and the art and architecture and f lovely dinner parties and his hosts and hostesses, never discussed the war. And he could not have not seen it. So I began to wonder what his true purpose was in traveling. He had, as you would say now, a perfect cover. He spoke many languages. Uh, he was the young, he looked Byronesque in his early uh, portraits. And could he have just seemed like uh, in today's understanding, a young, young scholar out traversing the world and uh, looking at lovely art? But um, because he never wrote about the wars until he actually wrote, reached Greece, it made me wonder whether he was um, a confidential agent, perhaps. Um, he went to immediately to um, meet with President, President uh, Thomas Jefferson when he returned. And, 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 and there again at Andalusia, um, which is Biddle's, uh, home estate and now has been preserved, and the archives there have uh, all of Biddle's original correspondence with James Monroe. And in that correspondence, there is a cipher. So I'm, I just wonder whether Biddle was writing letters home in code. He was I don't a spy? I, I, I think so. But I have no way of proving it. But of course, you can't prove that spies are spies, can you? <laughs> and he was present at Napoleon's coronation. He was. He was, and he was delighted to have been there. He felt that it, the, all the pomp appealed to him endlessly. He was, a, he was very young. You, you uh, describe him as having some callow narcissism. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, he grew up with privilege, right? Yes, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. And, and highly educated and uh, not a sense that the world could be against him, which I think was part of the problem with his battle with Andrew Jackson, because he really, no one had ever said no to him. If, you know, if you're a child prodigy, and you go off to college when you're a teenager, and um, and the only difficulty you have is that your voice hasn't yet broken, and you're still speaking in a sort of pipsqueak voice, and the young ladies think you're silly. That's not a hardship. Yeah, he was the head of a debating society at Princeton at something like age 14? Yes, the Classophic Society, which still exists. Um, and he was nicknamed Grammaticus. And I'm not sure that that was a compliment or whether it was uh, poking fun at him. What would he have been like to be around at that point in his life? Um, 
I can't tell. I think m probably went back and forth from being insufferable <laughs> to being, he was very curious about everything. So I think um, he might have been a bit of a nerd. Um, but he might have been very pompous and full of himself at the same time. I mean, if you think about a 14-year-old a prodigy now, are they fun to be around, or can they be a little bit of a know-it-all? You, you write about how he, he arranged to have himself uh, appointed to the, was it the New Jersey militia, so he yes. could wear a uniform? Yes. Well, that's before he went to Europe, and he wanted to look if he, you know, there's his brother who had been rescued by the Barbary pirates, and he didn't want to go to Europe and look like he just was a kid. So he had this quite outlandish um, officer's coat made, and uh, I think one of uh, one of his brother James's fellow officers admired the buttons, which um, young Nicholas was very proud of. He was there again. He was 19, and and really had not really had not been anywhere except from Princeton to Philadelphia. And you mentioned James Monroe, the fifth president. Uh, he he had quite a relationship with him. Yes, um, he served as Monroe's uh, secretary w during this time from 1804 to 1807. He was first in France and then went to Great Britain. And he, um, Monroe became his mentor. And he, and, and Monroe confided in him as well, which was very interesting. Uh, they, they struck up a very strong friendship, but he was all, always at pains to impress Monroe. So the letters, which are a fairly recent—the the correspondence between Monroe and Biddle is a fairly recent course, uh, gift to Andalusia. It, the letters had been sitting in a descendant's attic for years. No one even knew they existed. And when I began my research, I went to the Library of Congress, where all of Biddle's other letters, or most of them are, and, um, and read these letters. And I thought, oh, ho-hum, pursuant to that question, I agree. And then found these letters which are the draft correspondence, and they are entirely different, same date, and lines excised, and so you have an entirely different idea of what Biddle was doing, why he was writing to Monroe. Um, this was had to do much later on with the Missouri Compromise, with a treaty with Spain that Biddle helped broker um, because he was uh, s social friends with a man named Onis. Um, who uh, le lived in Philadelphia and was head of a shadow Spanish legation. So this was the Onise Adams Treaty, and he was part and parcel of all of that. And that no one would know that if this draft correspondence hadn't come to light. You also write about a scrapbook that uh, Nicholas Biddle put together fairly late in life, and you're the first person to dig through it? Yes. It was all wrapped up. And I said to the archivist at Andalusia, we got to know each other very well because I spent a great deal of time there, and she was incredibly helpful. Connie Houchins is her name. Um, and she, I said, what's this? And she said, well, I, I'm not sure. And we opened it up. It was wrapped in archival paper. 
Um, she had wrapped it up, but didn't really examine it. It was a, it was a large size volume, and we realized it was a scrapbook. And so I started turning the pages, and and understood that Biddle was putting it together during the last days of his life, and you could see by the way that he put the different pieces of preserved newspaper or letters or whatever the whatever the information he wanted to preserve in the scrapbook he glued it on the page but sometimes a little crookedly so i could see that his hand might have been shaking um he was by then fairly uh frail in health um this is long after the the bank issue um and then then it came to the last page and there's nothing there and and I knew he was working on it and I just wept because I thought I saw his death right there it's in and yes he's a great 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 ancestor but it was as if I was looking at somebody who was maybe my father my grandfather I had by then become so close to him um, doing my research, but personally I felt I knew him and I felt I knew and understood his grief over the bank war and how he was ultimately treated. And to see that those pages just end and know that he never returned to the book was grievous to me. He seemed to spend his life crossing paths with the major people in American history at the time, and one of them, you write that when he came back from Europe, he studied the law, and one of his first clients was, was uh, Aaron Burr, after he had shot Alexander Hamilton. A Aaron, and Aaron Burr was a very good friend of um, Nicholas's father, Charles, and when Aaron Burr shot Hamilton, uh, he fled and, uh, and came to Philadelphia and stayed with Charles. Nicholas then was about to leave for France and was very upset that his father had taken in Burr um, and felt that this was gonna be a, a, a blot on the family. Um, so he actually left to, to go to France early because of Burr being in the household. But then when he returned, his father was still very concerned about Burr, very concerned about his emotional well-being, and persuaded um, young Nicholas as a young attorney, which, by the way, he didn't really cotton to, um, to take on Burr as a client. And he did so, and they both had attended Princeton, um, and he did so and, and really, I think, understood then what the situation was with Burr and why, why Burr felt so disenfranchised. And when he was leaving France, he came back to Philadelphia. And I want to read something you write about uh, Philadelphia at the time. Philadelphia could become a, a dirty, dangerous place where mad dogs roamed the streets attacking children, adults, and other dogs and causing deadly and excruciating hydrophobia now known as rabies. So uh, it's not a, a, an image you get of Philadelphia at the time with mad dogs well, storming the streets. <laughs> no, no, you don't. But then think about the fact that we really didn't know much about medicine and um, think about the 
1793 yellow fever um, epidemic and they and and subsequent epidemics of the same kind and you know we didn't know anything about hydrophobia except that it existed and if you know you think about refuse was thrown out into the street so uh, it, it it looks very cleaned up now in some cases some sometimes sometimes not so much because we still have lots of trash problems but um, but then you know people didn't understand health as well as they do now and so yeah why did he come back to Philadelphia it seemed like a lot of his attention was on the national government and he didn't go to Washington well, he actually first, when he returned, he first went to Washington to confer with um, pre then President Jefferson. So his parents expected him to arrive in Philadelphia, and they went to the Lazaretto, um, the quarantine hospital um, in the Delaware River to meet him, and he had decamped already and gone, um, de decamped in, in uh, Delaware and gone down to Washington. So, and they were very disappointed, but they they also understood that he was serving his country in some way, which is why I think he might have been a confidential agent, because they wrote to him and said, "Duty to your country comes first. Um, you will see your parents when you return." And also talking about things that seemed to just come his way, he, he edited the journals of the Lewis and Clark expedition. And I want to read the title. If, if Book titles are more concise these days, but this was the journal of the expedition under the command of Captain Lewis and Clark to the sources of the Missouri, thence across the Rocky Mountains and down the river Columbia to the Pacific Ocean, performing during the years 1804-56 by order of the government of the United States. It's a catchy title. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, and, and there again, I wonder whether Jefferson had something to do with Biddle's uh, being appointed to that position. William Clark wrote to Biddle, who was, he was part of the uh, literary scene in Philadelphia at the time. He was a young attorney, but his real love was writing. And he was then, the then acting editor of the preeminent uh, literary uh, magazine, uh, The Portfolio. And so he was probably a good choice, but it was also I thought it was odd, um, and why? And was it because he had met with Jefferson, or what? 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 What was that connection? Because obviously, that the whole uh, expedition was all Jefferson's idea to, in the beginning. But um, William Clark wrote to Biddle and said, uh, "You have been recommended to me. Would you consider?" Uh, being the editor of these journals, and he felt absolutely ill-equipped and uh, wrote back and said, I don't think I could possibly do that, and I have another career. And then, in typical fashion, because he was rash, which I love about him, um, he, 
he he changed his mind and changed his mind probably two days later and immediately sent another letter to William Clark saying, yes, of course, I would love to take on this task. And then lest that letter be delayed, he jumped on a stagecoach and headed down to Virginia to meet with Clark um, so that he could plead his case and kept a journal along the way in French. <laughs> so I'm there again, think, did he imagine that other people were auditioning for the same role? And was he looking at them and saying, I'm going to beat you out? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But he, anyway, he met with Clark and he took on the task. And I spend some time in my book writing about that because I thought the letters between Clark and Biddle of Clark reliving this extraordinary adventure, danger and uh, terror and and joy and ex and and uh, uh, wonderment and uh, Biddle reliving it really like an armchair traveler, but trying to put all these notes into concise form and ask what this word meant, what that word meant, and also uh, looking at the tribal languages and asking what those various words were in those languages. And so what was the, uh, it just, it's, it's a curiosity. Now, you write in your book that he served a couple of years in the Pennsylvania legislature, but, but he never pursued a career as an elected official? He did not. I think he found it to be really uh, difficult. Um, he had, uh, he started out working for the betterment of um, people who were Im impoverished and education. He was very interested in providing education for everyone. And he was working hard at all of those. I, I think they, those were the interests that were close to his mind. And then there came this argument about whether the first bank of the United States should retain its charter. And that was Alexander Hamilton's bank, obviously. And that was in 1810. And the anti-bank people, who were myriad, felt that there should be no central bank, that uh, each state should have a bank. And Biddle felt absolutely not. He was 23, 24 at that time. And he felt that there had to be a central bank because otherwise, really, people couldn't be well cared for. If you know, if it's a, if it's a state bank, then 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 all of a sudden, this whole states' rights issues was rearing its ugly head. And so he, that was his first argument in front of the chamber, and he spoke for. Up, upward of three hours with just a handful of notes. I saw his notes, and they're tiny little pieces of scraps of paper. But he was impassioned in his defense of a central bank, and um, and and brooked no argument at all. But he lost, and so Alexander Hamilton's first bank of the United States lost its charter in 1811. And I think it was such a blow for Nicholas that this, this vision of what 
kept the country going and made it successful and allowed people to borrow money and pay it back and move money from state to state, that it all of a sudden was destroyed. And then, of course, we have the War of 1812, and the, that which nearly bankrupted the nation because there was no, there was no money. It was just no, it was just still states banks then. So I think he was very disillusioned by politics and said, "Enough is enough. I'm not going to do that." You say in here his brief history as a legislator failed to improve the image, uh, his image because he had focused on what his more seasoned colleagues viewed as useless causes. Yes. Now he also he parted ways with some of his his colleagues on the issue of slavery. Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, his father um, had been a sea captain um, early days, and uh, one of the people that he worked for said that he said, "No, I want you not to just be a sea captain moving goods around. I want you to uh, to be the captain of a slaver and uh, slaving ship." And he absolutely refused. He said, um, "I think this trade is." evil and reprehensible and should be stopped, and uh, I won't have anything to do with it. And so um, early abolitionist and um, Nicholas Biddle grew up that way. I mean, they were, they were, they started out as Quakers, and yes, Quakers owned slave and enslaved peoples, but um, he, he grew up thinking that that was altogether vile. So, yes. Now, we're, we're more than halfway through this discussion and we haven't yet gotten to the second bank of the United States, which is kind of the focus of your book. But I have to ask about a couple of more things before we get into that. One is uh, he, he befriended uh, Joseph Bonaparte, speaking of Napoleon Bonaparte, who moved, Joseph Bonaparte moved to Philadelphia after Bonaparte fell? Yes, um, and had built an enormous mansion in New Jersey, um, which ultimately burned down, but the grounds are still there, and they became very good friends. And uh, so Biddle would journey from his um, his estate on the Delaware across to uh, Bonaparte's estate. And they also knew each other in Philadelphia because Bonaparte had a house in Philadelphia. But it was a, it was, you know, cosmopolitan uh, city then, Philadelphia. It had been the capital, and so people from various nations ex lived here and were completely comfortable speaking in different languages. It was, um, it, it's, it was eventually eclipsed by other cities, but um, at the time it was the city. He was also friends with Washington Irving and James Fenimore Cooper. He ran with a pretty fast company. <laughs> he did. He did. And my research into his uncle's death um, in this terrible naval battle, um, a great deal of that research was um, by, in a book written by James Fenimore Cooper on the entire history of the United States Navy. And he, it, it, each battle, each ship, the tonnage of each ship, the various headings, it was all so beautifully detailed. And I, I had no idea until I said, I need to find out about this battle. And lo and behold, James Fenimore Cooper led me right into the, moment by moment, blow by blow. Well, I guess we should start talking about the banks. And you mentioned the first bank of the United States. First of all, can you talk about how it worked and why it was necessary and why did it go away in the first place? 
Well, I, Hamilton's idea and ideal was that commerce drove the nation. And that was Biddle's ideal as well. And how then, if, if commerce drives the nation and we are a nation that is joined up of various states and interests, then how does that commerce affect people from different cultures, backgrounds, and so forth. So if you're if you're a northern northern state, um, or you're a Virginian, how does that commerce affect you? And so it was it was Hamilton's brilliant idea that there would be a central bank rather than just the Bank of Virginia or the Bank of New York or the Bank of Rhode Island. That everything would be consolidated, and so monies could move freely. And it would be a national money, stamped with a national character and a national, whether it was gold or it was was ultimately paper, um, that it would have a national character. But it was privately owned. It was privately owned, but it was also chartered by the United States government. So how that ultimately worked in Hamilton's time, I'm not sure. But it came under the aegis of the government. So did, did all the federal money stay in that bank? Yes. Like when you paid your taxes, it went to the Bank of the United States? Yes. Why did it go away? Um, because the states' rights people felt that there should be, if, if money is in Pennsylvania, it should stay in Pennsylvania. It shouldn't go to help out the farmers in Virginia or the, or the industrialists in Rhode Island. So that's why it went away. Is there an equivalent of that bank today? The uh, federal bank. But um, the Fed uh, didn't come into existence until 1930s, I think. Um, 1930s, not 1830s. Mm -hmm. um, so there, we did not have a national bank after um, Jackson destroyed the second bank of the United States. There wasn't a central bank until the Fed. Was it uh, was it a political thing that killed the first bank? Like people who didn't like Alexander Hamilton? Yes, yes, and. And uh, one of the people who was most against it, which is, seems so bizarre, and I can't figure this out, but um, one of Andrew Jackson's confidants, um, not a member of his cabinet, but somebody who had his ear, was uh, James Hamilton, who was Alexander Hamilton's son, and he hated the idea of a central bank. So if they killed the first bank of the United States, how did the second one come about? Because, uh, actually, it, it happened in uh, 1816, yes, 1816, because of the War of 1812. And everybody realized we are almost dying as a nation because we don't have a national bank. So that's when the second bank of the United States was chartered. How much of the financing and the inner workings of the second bank did you have to understand to to write this book, because it's kind of complicated. It's complicated, and I avoided spending a lot of time on it, because I that is not my métier. I really was m far more interested in the personalities and why um, I will leave that to, to somebody who really understands. And there, um, oh, is it uh, Bray? There are writers who have, who have really delved into the whole 
the inner workings of the first bank and the second bank. And I read them and said, that's fascinating, but I want to know who were these characters who were either for the bank or against it and why. So when the second bank came along, uh, your great, your ancestor, Nicholas Biddle, was named a director. So what did he know about finance and how did he learn it? Um, that's another curious question because it was Monroe who um, named him as a director. And the bank was in disarray then. Um, it was chartered, uh, all was going well, except there was some illicit dealings and uh, there were bank uh, members who were on the board, who were in control, who were filling their own pockets. Um, Monroe was deeply concerned about this, and so he asked Nicholas Biddle, and I think there again, Nicholas Biddle was acting as a, um, as a Monroe uh, spy to tell him what was going on. So he, and then, and then Monroe was able to expunge some of those directors who were pilfering. I, I want to read this here, right? Baltimore was the home of the Second Bank's most egregious transgressors, three men who Monroe in private noted to Biddle called them dark and insidious villains. So they were raking off basically federal funds? That's right. Second That's Bank right. got off to a bad start. It did. It started out maybe for a few months and was fine. And then, and then of course, these people came in and said, oh, free money, I'll just take it. And, uh, and so that's when Biddle came into his, her, his first role. So he, he, he was in constant contact with Monroe as what was going on. And, uh, so they, they couldn't shut down the bank at that point? I mean, it had a charter for a certain amount of time? They did, and um, and I, and I think I mean there again, Monroe completely believed in in the bank, and it was just get rid of these villains, um, and then bring in people who were honest. So Nicholas Biddle eventually became president of the bank. Yes. Yep. Eighteen twenty-three. What did he do to to turn it around? He brought in people that he felt he could trust. He created checks and balances. Um, he was very scrupulous. He was, um, which it's interesting given his kind of rash personality, that he also understood how to run a business. And so he created a whole, I mean, he, he wrote uh, three volumes on how the bank should work and how the various directors of the various branches should interact with each other and how reports should be made and how those reports should be read. And so there were constant checks and balances. Was the bank profitable? Well, I don't know. I don't think I ever asked myself that question. Because it had shareholders, and you think yes. the shareholders would want... Yes, I, well, I, I would assume it was. He was very much admired by his European counterparts um, in, in France and England, the Barings and the Rothschilds thought he was uh, doing an admirable job. So I, I didn't even ask that question. Now, thank you for, <laughs> maybe that's because I'm an author and I don't ask about profits. <laughs> 
why was the bank in Philadelphia? I mean, uh, Wall Street was emerging at the time and Washington was the capital. Why, why put the bank in Philadelphia? Well, but Philadelphia had been the capital and that's where the first bank was centered. And, um, and I think it was not until really Van Buren was um, Jackson's vice president and a New Yorker and that's when basically Wall Street started to move because Philadelphia was the original, not Wall Street, but it was the banking center. Yeah, you say that uh, Martin Van Buren, his motive uh, of encouraging Jackson's battle with Biddle was less the central bank's death than its removal from Philadelphia to the place he believed it should be its natural home, New York, which yes. was his home. That's right. So then that was the birth of Wall Street. And he said this is, you know, if you think about the envy between um, d cities and states, um, you know, Washington was chosen as the capital because it was an, a nowhere, nowhere land. It was a marshy mess of a place um, that had to be created out of whole cloth. Um, but, but because the Northerners didn't want Virginia, Richmond, to be the capital, and the Virginians didn't want, let's say, uh, Massachusetts, Boston, to be the capital. So, um, so there was this sense of um, perhaps pride and envy, and um, Van Buren, being a New Yorker, felt, no, it has to be New York. Is the, the second bank building still standing? Oh, yes. And it is wonderful. I it's it's now a portrait gallery, and uh, there's a there's quite a wonderful portrait of Nicholas Biddle and of Jane, his wife, in it. But also all of the leading members of the the eras, um, and it's it's the the building is absolutely extant. It has been beautifully restored. Um, I just go and, and hang out there and lurk around and think of Nicholas Biddle standing there and striding out. It was, he created the building to look like a Greek temple because he was so admired um, the architecture of ancient Greece. And we didn't know anything about Greek revival until all of a sudden it was here in the form of a bank. Um, so temple to finance. Now, another one of the major characters in history who uh, Nicholas Biddle dealt with was uh, John Quincy Adams, the sixth president. So he was very much an ally with John Quincy Adams. And did, did that fact put him on the outs with Andrew Jackson? Oh, probably yes, because um, Jackson, Jackson hated um, Adams. I mean, they had had a, a bitter battle over who was going to be president, and Jackson's supporters attacked the supporters of Adams. They were, people were beaten up going to the polling place. But I think also um, Jackson mistrusted banks because he had been bankrupted. And I think there was this sense there again of, um, uh, he represented voters who had long felt disenfranchised, who viewed the sort of the moneyed aristocracy as the moneyed aristocracy who wouldn't let them participate in the running of government. And so Jackson's adherents were this new group of voters who decided they were going to oust 
the people who had been in charge for decades. He also felt that the election of 1824 was rigged and he was robbed of the election. Yes, yes. And that may have been true, but remember, um, Thomas Jefferson was very much opposed to Jackson. He felt he was a dangerous man. He felt that he couldn't control his emotions, that his temper ran away with him, that he didn't find people that he could uh, trust, or that he, the people that he trusted were untrustworthy. Um, and he had worked with him in the Senate. So um, I, there, was he robbed of it? Or were there, were there other forces at work? I don't know. It's really hard to pull all of that apart. You also say preparations for the election of 1828 had begun almost immediately following the election of 1824 when Jackson and his supporters swore they would never be cheated out of the presidency again. So, um, so the stage was set for when Jackson got elected for him to take on the bank? Absolutely. And Biddle hoped that uh, Jackson would change his mind. Uh, he knew that he was mistrusted banking as a whole. Um, you know, he was a rough-hewn uh, ex-soldier. And so the running of a government or a large financial institution was not in his history. But Biddle really hoped that he could persuade Jackson, once Jackson became president, that this was for the good of the nation. However, Jackson's supporters and his cabinet um, were of, of one mind, which was just get expunge all the people who have kept us in our place rather than letting us rule the nation. And Nicholas Biddle was just the type of well-born kind of elitist who Andrew Jackson just didn't like. Absolutely. I, it, it's so interesting to imagine what would have happened if they'd actually passed each other on the streets of Philadelphia. And they may well have at one point or another when, when Jackson, before Jackson became president, um, when he was in the Senate. I, who knows? But um, it, it's, they were, they were polar opposites. And uh, Jackson was very proud of his heritage. He was very proud of being, um, as I said, rough-hewn, uh, lacking a, an education. Nicholas Biddle had this, this kind of, as I said, a child prodigy with this extraordinary education. He was a polymath. He, he. They were they were complete polar opposites. One was one was highly cultured. One was proud of not being cultured. Um, one came from what was then sort of the the as it was called the Athens of America. Uh, you know, the, all the center of the arts and sciences, and one from uh, pioneer stock. I want to ask you about this little sidebar in your story that I'd like you to ask, uh, talk about is the, the, the Peggy Eaton scandal. Oh, yes, the petticoat affair. <laughs> Peggy Eaton was a fascinating character. 
Um, she um, be, was wife to uh, one of Jackson's um, members of his cabinet, and but she had been married before, and then there was a scandal about what, which would have been all right, but there was a scandal about whether she, in fact, had begun an affair with Eaton before she married him. And so all of the wives of the other cabinet members and the wives of the various senators didn't want anything to do with her. And um, they refused to meet with her. They refused to socialize with her. They refused to even admit her into their um, into their realm. And um, and so Jackson had to decide whether to support Eaton in this disaster or not. And and he was a stubborn man, just as Nicholas Biddle was. And he decided to support Eaton, even though this almost blew his cabinet up. How did it end up? Uh, it ended up being pushed under the carpet, just the way most scandals do. <laughs> now, Nicholas Biddle was married. Yes, he was married. Um, his wife, Jane, loved music. Uh, she was a homebody. Um, they, they had, it was a real love match, but I think pretty much arranged by Jane's mother. Who you say is a force of nature. She was an absolute force of nature. She was um, Irish. Uh, there again, spoke several languages, came to this country, had married uh, a, um, a man who owned uh, ships. So, uh, <clears throat> and so she came here and and had an this the original state Andalusia on the Delaware, and I think saw young Nicholas as a rising star and arranged for an introduction with her daughter, who I think was very much in awe of her mother um, and kept in the in the shade a bit of her mother because she really couldn't compete. Um, Peggy was very grand. Um, she was petite, but very grand in demeanor. Um, she was a flirt. Uh, she loved to entertain. And Jane was really a complete opposite of her mother, and uh, really a homebody, as I said. And she loved raising her children, being with her children. When um, Nicholas then really became more and more in the public eye, that made her unhappy. Uh, she she was so much happier up at Andalusia, their country estate, than she was in their house in Philadelphia. Um, Biddle loved to entertain, and he entertained continuously, maybe every night of the week. And Jane was much happier just with hearth and home. So Andalusia was his wife's family home? Yes. Is it open to the public today? It is. It is. You have to make a reservation um, it, because in, with COVID, it shut down, but now it's being opened again. You can stroll the grounds, um, and then they're open certain days of the week that you can walk through the house, and you can see Nicholas Biddle's library. And I spent so much time in his library. And to me, he's alive in all of his books. Those are his books. He collected them throughout his life. He collected them in Europe when, in 1804 to 1807. And so, the, you know, all of the volumes are there. So it's original Latin, ancient Greek. He's read them all. 
Now, when Andrew Jackson decided he wanted to kill the second bank, did he really understand what was going on? Did he get the, the role of the bank, or did he just want to stick it to the elites? I think that was it. I think the, the latter. Um, I don't think he really understood banking as well as he should have. And remember, he had James Hamilton and Van Buren telling him this would work. And each had their own rationale for why it would work. Maybe Van Buren simply wanted to have a private bank that would be centered in New York. I don't know. it, But I, I, I think he was being manipulated by people who told him they understood the situation. And he just said, I, I hate these people. Did the public follow this? I mean, did the, was this something that was in the news? <laughs> It was in the news continuously, as as any situation is. And I had, I love doing historical research. I love delving into the different eras. I can spend hours reading one newspaper. And um, at the library company, they have all the original newspapers, and you they bring them out in wonderful, vast volumes, and you page through them. And so each newspaper had their own take on it. So, for instance, um, Polson's, which was uh, published in Philadelphia newspaper, and Niles Register, which was published in Baltimore, were pro-bank. So endless amounts of ink on why the bank and then there were then there were newspapers that were anti-bank and felt that there should be national banks and felt that there should be states rights so entirely different take and so you you as a consumer could read whichever news you wanted with the slant that appealed to you just as we do now so if Jackson wanted to kill the bank, how would he go about doing it? I mean, it had a charter that ran a certain number of years? That's right. And he refused to recharter it. And um, and the, the whole Senate um, erupted over that. Um, they, the Senate then vetoed his veto, and it became a real battle um, with, with loaded pistols being brought into the Senate chamber um, by Thomas Hart Benton, who was a Jackson supporter. And he said, and the, not just, uh, I mean, shouting match, fortunately, the pistols were not unloaded. I mean, were not, did not explode. But um, it became a battle royale in, in the Senate. You, you quote some of Andrew Jackson's veto uh, veto message when the Congress passed a renewal of the charter. He says, um, allegations ranging from opulent citizens controlling the institutions to the bank being a monopoly of the foreign and domestic exchange that made the American people debtors to aliens. Anything accurate in that, or is it all no, hyperbole? No, no, but I think there again, and I go into this other uh, issue, which is which is t too long to discuss, but there was something called the Poyer scandal, which happened in uh, England, and it was uh, money laundering in the extreme, and Jackson knew all about that and may have lost some money in that scandal. So he was very concerned about foreign interests, and of course we had foreign investors 
why wouldn't we if we're th this successful nation, um, just as we do now? Um, but but Jackson was, uh, and the Poyer scandal is well worth discovering. It's uh, it's a story that almost deserves its own film. When did uh, Nicholas Biddle know that he was beat? Um, Thirty-seven was when the bank ended, and and thereafter he tried, um, he tried to revive it. He tried to revive it through the Pennsylvania legislature. Um, there was it revived for a while as being um, chartered in Pennsylvania, but ultimately that didn't work because it wasn't a national bank. And uh, and he had been so pilloried in the press. And Jackson was pilloried as well. Jackson retreated to the Hermitage, and Biddle eventually retreated to Andalusia and, um, and died, I think, really of a broken heart. As you were writing this book and doing the research, did you ever imagine yourself having a conversation with Nicholas Biddle? And like, what would you talk about? Oh, that would be so wonderful. Um, I would like to start out with his scrapbook. I would like to ask him what he felt proudest of, what he felt um, most anxious about, whether he felt that he had been, um, whether hubris had taken him down the wrong path, whether he could have been more measured, um, what he loved in life, what he feared. I, I would just like to get to know him as a person. As I said, uh, you know, it's always in any story. And one of the one of the courses I teach at Drexel is in uh, examining history through a creative lens. So looking at a historical figure and wondering who they were, not not simply the era and and not simply putting a lot of facts and figures up there, but who that person was. And I would love to know what his hopes and dreams had been, what he'd been like as a child. As I said, I, 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 I sometimes I think I'm actually having that conversation with him, certainly in his library in Andalusia. Uh, and I was just up there a, a few weeks ago and got to sit in that library and look out at the Delaware River and imagine that he was there with me. We have been speaking with Cordelia Francis Biddle. She is the author of this book, Biddle, Jackson, and a Nation in Turmoil, the Infamous Bank War. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.